Well, we uh, actually kind of begin the sermon with that song because today I'm beginning a new series, and this uh, new series is uh, on eschatology. So that's our big word of the day, eschatology. And uh, many of you are familiar with that word. Some of you may not be familiar with that word. And so if you aren't, it's simply the study of last things. Eschatology is the study of last things. And so over the next few weeks, uh, 12 I think to be exact, we are going to be studying uh, last things or studying the end of time. Uh, what will that look like? What is going to happen as best as we can understand from Scripture? I would say if you look at the sermon title, it's rather long. It's longer than usual. And uh, the title points to the reality that eschatology ought to lead to sanctification, not speculation. Now, what do I mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. Often when people get engaged in studying end times, when they uh, look at the tribulation or the millennium or the marriage supper of the Lamb, or they look at these events that Daniel predicts in the Old Testament, that Isaiah predicts in the Old Testament, that Ezekiel predicts in the Old Testament, when they look at those events, it often leads them to speculate, Well, uh, because this is happening, certainly this means this is going to happen. It's going to happen at this place, at this particular time, and we're going to see everything unfold that way. Often people read the book of uh, the Revelation as if it were the book of the Revelation of the Antichrist instead of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. But it is the book that reveals, uh, that covers the revealing, the, the laying bare of Jesus Christ. And so when we look into this, we are not going to do as Jesus' disciples were begging him to tell him when and where and all that. We're not going to, uh, to uh, speculate. What we're going to do is look at the truth of God's word and it ought to lead us to sanctification. We're in the book of John, the the letter of John today, uh, one of three that he wrote. He also wrote what is called the Gospel of John. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So you have John's Gospel that he wrote. He wrote three letters, and we are in the first of those letters. And then he also wrote the book of the Revelation. So John wrote uh, in the New Testament more apocalyptic or uh, end-time stuff than anyone else did. So it is important then that we understand what it is that John would uh, have us to think when it comes to uh, the end of time. I would say during this series, you may want to take some notes and uh, uh, if you uh, just to jot some things down, feel free to email me later and I'll try to answer questions that you may have along the way. Uh, In this uh, passage that John uh, gives us, he gives us a command in light of the return of Christ, and the command is to abide. He says, abide in Jesus. Now, it's interesting that John says that because in his own gospel, in John 15, Jesus said, abide in me. And so this morning, we're going to look at why should you abide in Christ, number one, Uh, Number two, how do you abide in Christ? And number three, what is the result of abiding in Christ? So why abide in Christ? How do you do it? And what is the result? 
Look at this, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. The number one reason we ought to abide in Jesus, abide in Jesus, is because he's coming back. Uh, when he appears, not if he appears, John says, but when he does. So abide in Jesus so that when he appears, you may uh, have confidence and not shrink back from him at his appearing. The word appearing here is an interesting word. It is one of the most oft used words to describe the coming of Christ. And it pictures the visit of a king from another land. The visit of an emperor who's coming back to his homeland. He's been away on a journey. He's been somewhere else. And so this emperor or this king comes home. And he is met with great, uh, great anticipation, great excitement, great joy that the king or the emperor who has left is now coming back. Interesting enough that uh, John... Uh, knew Jesus when he was viewed as anything but a king or an emperor. John knew Jesus when Jesus walked along dusty roads, when Jesus wore sandals like everyone else did, when Jesus lacked a royal entourage, John was in his entourage then. It was that of just simple men who were his disciples. There were, there were nobody really to write home about. If you were building a crew of people to begin a movement that would change the world, you wouldn't pick the guys that Jesus picked, most likely. John was in that group. Jesus was anything but a king. The only time in Jesus' earthly life that he wore a crown was on the cross. When he hung there naked, when he hung there in shame, And so Jesus says this, or John says this Jesus who came in that way, who came in shame, who came in infamy, will come back in glory. He will come back as an emperor who's gone away to a far country, who's returning to his home country, and his people will be so excited to see him. That's what the word means. Why abide in Jesus? Because Jesus is coming back. This time of year reminds me of this story. Uh, We have several new uh, Montreal students here this morning. Welcome to you. Yes, and we had several in the early service too, and so we're glad to see you. I'll be teaching at Montreal this fall, so some of you may be in my, you're in my class. Yes, Uh, so some of you may be in my class. But I remember my freshman year at Wofford in Spartanburg, South Carolina. I knew nothing of Spartanburg uh, or, or South Carolina politics. I was from here, uh, from North Carolina, knew nothing of it. But I remember walking into the cafeteria one day, and it was the day that I had my uh, lab for biology. Three hours of lab that afternoon. I just had a narrow window of time to get some lunch, get to biology lab. And Dr. Dobbs, who taught my biology lab, did not tolerate tardies at all, at all. So I knew I better get there. I better be on time. And so as I'm headed into the cafeteria, I see a bunch of men in suits. I mean, they're everywhere, a bunch of guys in suits. And I'm thinking, what in the world are they doing? They're kind of in the doorway, only one way in. They're in the doorway. They're kind of blocking it. And so I just kind of weaved my way through those men, bumped into a couple of them, told one of them. I just said, excuse me. uh, And just kind of, you know how you'll say, excuse me, and push somebody at the same time, like you're nicely pushing them out of the way. Well, I nicely pushed him out of the way. And as soon as I did, I was surrounded by guys in suits. 
And I thought, what in the world? And they looked at me and they said, what are you doing, son? And I said, I'm just heading in here to get a hot dog to get back to, you know, get to biology lab. And they let me go. That night, I'm watching the news only to discover that the guy I nudged into and politely said, excuse me and get out of my way, was the governor of South Carolina. I had no clue who he was. No clue at all. But he was the governor of South Carolina. Do you know what I fear? I fear that so many of us do not have an active, dynamic relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That if we were to bump into him, we would politely ask him to move out of the way as we go on about the busyness of our lives. I have a fear that that as we come into this place, we are so occupied with work and school and, 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 and home and family and ball and so many other things and image and, and going into junior high for the first time or high school for the first time or college for the first time that if we were to encounter Jesus, he would be almost a nuisance to us. And John says, if that is your attitude, you won't be looking for him to come back. As a matter of fact, when he comes back, you would really more shrink back at his coming than you would to be thrilled that he has returned. Why should you abide in Jesus? Because he's coming back. You should abide in him because you will either be confident or you'll be ashamed, John says. There will be no other way. Now, John's view here and the view of all the gospel writers and all New Testament writers who wrote about the end of time counteracted the the prevailing view of history at the time. The Greek prevailing view of history was that history was cyclical. It just went in cycles. And and believe it or not, we've adapted that. Whether or not we like to think of that, we have. Because we say what goes around comes around. History does what? Repeats itself. That's what we say. And that was the prevailing Greek view, is that history is not pointing toward an end. And here is the goal, and here is the end. Rather, history is is, is over here, and it's going in these circles, these cycles, so that there is really no end to live for. And so when when, when John says that Jesus is coming back, that he's appearing, that there is going to be this appearance, a king who's gone on a a journey to a far country, who's coming back to his own country, to his own people. When Jesus is doing that, John is saying there's an end point to all of this. I just finished leading the story, which is a great tool to learn how to share the gospel. And you guys should sign up for that this fall. A great, great tool. And in the story, we learn four things. Creation. We learn, let's start over here. Creation, fall, rescue, and restoration. God created. Adam and Eve fell. Jesus rescued. And ultimately, God's going to restore. That's what we learned about. That's history as Scripture sees it. So when John says this, he goes against this prevailing Greek view that history just runs in cycles. Not only does it counteract that view, it counter, counter, counteracts an atheistic, existentialist view, existentialist view of history. What is that? That history repeats itself, but it's meaningless. There is no meaning to history. Say, so, Jerry, how does that work? Well, one of them himself Albert Camus wrote a story 
about a bubonic plague, and it was brought into the city by rats. And the rats brought in the, the plague in the city. The people began to die, and a doctor in the city comes to the city just for the purpose of, of rescuing the people from the plague. And so he does, and, and it's wonderful, and he's applauded for what he does. But at the very end of the story, at the very end of the novel, here's how it goes. But everyone knows that the rats will come back again. That's an atheistic, existentialist view of history. History does repeat itself, but as it does, there's no meaning to it. So live any way you want, or we might interpret it this way. Hurricane Katrina comes. We have an immediate response. We send folks there. We have an immediate response. We we want to do that. But if I'm atheistic in my point of view, I combine that with an existentialism that says uh, the two together, that life is meaningless, what's going to happen? Well, why bother to send people there? There's going to be another one. There was this hurricane. Well, another one will hit. And without realizing, many of us adopt that mindset, don't we? Well, well, I I know that this bad thing is just going to happen again. As a matter of fact, a leader of atheists post-Hurricane Katrina was interviewed, I think, by Larry King. And he was asked the question. they, They were just addressing this issue of Hurricane Katrina with him and the aftermath of it. And he was asked the question, did any from your group go to serve? He said, no. It never occurred to him to go help. And he said so. He said it never occurred to our group. It isn't within our ethic to respond to a tragedy in a way like this. Christian history is different. It points toward an end. If you want another you know, big, huge word, it's teleological, it's called. It points toward a specific goal. And the goal is that Jesus Christ is going to come back to his own. And when he comes back, he'll come back as a king. Why about in Jesus? Because he's coming back. Secondly, because you're God's child. Look at verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. I love that verse. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That phrase, see what kind of love, literally means it's from another country. Uh, The love that God has for us is foreign to us. It is hard for us to grasp. It is hard for us to get, isn't it? See what kind of love. See this other country kind of love that the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. We ought to abide in Christ because we're his kids. We ought to abide uh, abide in Christ because we're God's kids. We ought to abide in Christ because God is our Father who sent his son Jesus to die for our sins on the cross. That's why we ought to abide in him. I know some of you struggle with this because you think of your own earthly dad and that wasn't good. And so to think of God as your father and him loving you as a father would love his kids is difficult for you. I would say to you, if you have children, my guess is that you're not the kind of dad to your children that your dad was to you. If that's the case, then one way to understand this is to try to understand how your kid sees you, how your kid receives love from you. Just yesterday, Trent and I hung out for a little bit. It's my 10-year-old. And uh, we went to do the annual. School's about to start back. We better get some clothes on the kid day, right? Wendy had to work. So Trent and I head over to Asheville. He's got some money. We've got some money. We're going to put it together. He's pretty excited. He's got some things in his mind that he wants to pick out and buy. And so he's pretty excited, and we're heading over to Asheville. 
And so we head over to Asheville, we're shopping, we're in the mall, we're doing this, we're doing that, we're just hanging out. And uh, he's 10. But if you've never met Trent, many of you know Trent, but if you've never met Trent, he's 10 years old, but he's 5'4". All right, so he's a tall kid. As a matter of fact, the pair of shoes he just bought are size 11. He and I now trade shoes back and forth. All right, so my 10-year-old is 5'4". He wears shoes size 11. But I was saying to Wendy early this morning, I wonder when it will hit him. I wonder when he will grow out, I guess, of the face of holding my hand. He still holds my hand. We're walking through the mall, and he's holding my hand. And I'm, I'm thinking, Trent, people probably think you're 14. You look 14. Your shoe looks 14. Trent's not thinking anything like that. He's thinking, that's my daddy. We're in the mall together, and he's holding my hand. And so we're just holding hands right through the mall, just walking down. You know, he's up to here on me, big strapping football player, and we're just walking through holding hands. What is he doing in that moment? Well, later, later we had gone out because uh, we just made it a whole day, which means you end the day with sushi. Wow. He and I love sushi. So we go to Wasabi's in Asheville. We're sitting there at the sushi bar. The guy's making the sushi. He makes his little squid and seaweed salad, which we love. And I know I'm making some of you sick and some of you salivate, you know, see one or the other on this. But uh, so he's making that. Trent and I are eating that. And he's looking over at me like, Daddy, this is the best ever. And so then Trent gets his sushi. I get my sushi. We're eating our sushi. And we're like, wow, this is so good. And we leave and we're walking back to this cobblestone street that we had to park on. And and as we're walking back, he grabs my hand again. We're walking down the sidewalk, and he looks up at me, and he says, Daddy, and I said, what? And he said, I love hanging out with you. And I turned and looked at him and said, Trent, I love to hang out with you too. That's abiding in Christ. It's just it's hanging out with God. Why should you do it? Because God is your dad. He said, yeah, I struggle to receive that. So do I. I. I must be honest with you. I struggle to accept that. More than not, it seems foreign to me. It is of another country. But he loves us like that. He loves us like that. He he wants to hang out with us just as we should want to hang out with him. Well, how do you do it? You say, okay, Jerry, you've convinced me. I should abide in Jesus. How do I do it? Verse 29, I think, gives us a simple two-word definition. If you know that he, Jesus, is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. How do you abide in Jesus? Practice righteousness. Practice righteousness. What does that mean? Do the right thing again, 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 and again. Just do the right thing. Practice righteousness. I'll talk about my daughter for a moment. She's 19, and right now she's abiding in volleyball. You say, how do you know? Well, for the past two weeks, she has gotten up in the morning and been to the gym at 6 a.m. for practice. And she practices until 9 a.m., and then she breaks until noon, and she practices from 12 until 3. She's practicing six hours a day of volleyball right now. She's practicing volleyball. Guess what she's abiding in? Volleyball, right? She wakes up thinking volleyball. Her body screams what? Volleyball. You know, it hurts because she's getting in shape. She texted me the other day and she said, Dad, ran a mile in 650, puked at the end. (laughs) She's just abiding in volleyball. 
Practicing righteousness is the way to abide in Jesus. Doing the right thing again and again and again and again. It may not feel good. You don't do it because it feels good. There's no place I've ever found in scripture that says coming to faith in Christ will feel a certain way. But Hebrews eleven six says without what church? Faith. It is impossible to please God. For those who come to him must believe that he is or that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek. We could say parenthetically abide in him. You practice righteousness. You do the right thing again and again and again. And again, and again, you just keep doing the right thing. You abide in Christ, even when it doesn't feel good. And verse 3 touches on the heart side of it, lest we uh, reduce it just to uh, a mechanistic, or we just do these things, and, and if I do the right thing, I'm in Jesus. Look at verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. All right, how do you abide? Practice righteousness. Number two, hope in Jesus. Hope in Jesus. That's a heart, mind, emotional thing to hope. Hope in Jesus. You say, how does that work? I want to say this. Share this in the early service, which was packed with people. This has been the heaviest week I can remember in years in counseling in this church. And I want you to hear me on something because some of you sit in this room this morning with whom I've spoken this week. There will be times in your life when you cannot hope in your career. There will be times in your life when you cannot hope in your marriage. There will be times in your life when you cannot hope in your health. But there will never be a time in your life when you cannot hope in Jesus Christ. Never. The way you abide in Christ is to hope in Him. It's to put all of your collective, emotional, and spiritual, and physical eggs in His basket and say, Jesus, you're my number one. If she leaves me, you're my number one. If he fires me, you're my number one. If the diagnosis is cancer, you're my number one. If my teenager turns her back on us, his back on us, Jesus, you're our number one. Abide in him. That's how you do it. You keep doing the right thing even when you don't feel like doing the right thing, even when the right thing seems so hard and foreign, and you you hope in him. There's a room full of people who've at one point in their life survived by hoping in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, it is the only way into the kingdom. If you ever 
anticipate the king coming back. You better be in the kingdom. And the only way into the kingdom is to, at some point, hope in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. Amen? That's the entry point already. What is the result of abiding in Jesus? We'll be like him. That's the result. We will be like Jesus. That's the result of abiding in him. Look at uh, verse 2 of chapter 3. Beloved, we are God's children now. He says that again. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. All right, so we're God's kids now, but we're really not yet fully there yet, is what John is saying. We're God's kids now, but we don't feel that way sometimes, and we don't act that way sometimes. There seems to be a big disconnect, doesn't there? Sometimes you wonder why you do what you do and why you say what you say. Prior to that, I love this. John says that the world, though they see us, does not know us just as they saw Jesus and did not know him. Here's what John R. Stott says about this. He says, what we are does not now appear to the world. What we shall be does not yet appear to us. All right, so the world looks at us and thinks, wow, they're weird. Why do they not do this and why do they do this? And why do they not go here and why do they go here? And why do they give their lives for this and their money for this and and not spend money on this? These people are really weird. And so the world looks at us and says, who in the world are they? But according to this passage, we look at ourselves and ask ourselves the question, who in the world am I? I know I'm God's God's kid now, but why in the world did I just do that? I know I belong to God now, but why in the world did I just do that? Why did I go there? Why did I say this? Uh, Why did these words come out of my mouth? Or why did these actions come from my hands? Or or, or why did these thoughts go through, through our minds? That's what John is saying. There's this already but not yet uh, aspect of the gospel that we are already God's children, but we're really not fully living like that. So so how do we know? 1 Corinthians um, 13, 12 gives us some insight into this. Paul says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So Paul here likens sanctification, which is becoming more like Christ, likens sanctification to looking into a a mirror to see Jesus. But, But when we look in it, it's fuzzy right now. It's like taking a picture, and as you take a picture, the picture is blurry. We look in it and we look to see Jesus, but it's difficult to see. Paul touched on that again in First uh, Corinthians or Second Corinthians three eighteen. Let me read that to you. He says, "And we all, with unveiled face, compared to Moses, whose face was veiled, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit." What is Paul saying? Paul saying this is that this is how to measure if you, number one, belong to Christ, and number two, are growing in Christ if you do. Are you more like Jesus today than you were a year ago? 
There ought to be some mile markers in your life, and you look at your life and go, okay, a year ago, this is where I was, and a year later, this is where I am now. Because when you abide in Christ, it's like looking into a mirror dimly, and you can see Jesus, but you have to strain past all the sin and past all of the the difficulties to see Jesus. And so what do you do? You look through that mirror, and the more you look through that, though it's dim and dark, the more you do, the more you become like Christ. In the New Testament Gospels and in the letters, for some reason, seeing Jesus is equivalent to knowing him. It is here and in many other places. So I'm seeing him so that ultimately one day at the end of all things, when I am with him, I will see him as he is and I will know him as he is. And only in that moment will I fully know myself. Stripped of all of the sin and all of these things that detract. So there's this already but not yet aspect. I shared this with the group I taught in the evangelism class, the the story class during um, kids camp. But I saw this played out just a couple weeks ago. I had this wonderful, glorious, godly idea that I would go pull all my mother-in-law's weeds. She had plenty of them. It's the big job. All right? So I dragged Trent along with me. It wasn't his idea, and he wasn't happy about it. But we're going to do it. So he and I are pulling weeds, and I'm just doing this really wonderful, glorious, godly thing, right? My my mother-in-law has no clue I'm doing it while I'm doing it. I'm just being the best son-in-law in in the world to pull all her weeds, and she's going to come up her driveway, and when she does, there's not going to be a weed one, and she's going to be thrilled. So I'm doing wonderful motives, all of this kind of stuff, just trying to be altruistic, do this thing for her when, uh, when Trent gets on my last nerve. Like I'm trying to work with him, and he grates, and it's just all I can take. And so I have this thing that I've been digging weeds with, and I grab it, and I just throw it down on the ground. I said, Trent, go get in the Jeep, turn the air on, I'll finish this job. He looked at me and didn't say a word and started back to work. Pick up the trial, working again. It was later that evening. I'm driving him down the road, and I'm going down the road, and I look over, and I said, Trent, I owe you an apology. He said, I know what it's for. (laughs) I said, what is it, son? He said, throwing that thing. I said, I'm really sorry. He said, it was really funny. (laughs) I said, Trent, no, it wasn't funny. He said, oh, you should have seen yourself. It was funny. He said, I almost laughed then. I said, why didn't you? He said, because then it wouldn't have been funny anymore. I said, you're right. I'm glad you've learned that. I said, Trent, though, really, I never should have done that. I said, I shouldn't lose my cool like that. I should get angry like that. I said, do you forgive me? He said, yes, Dad. I said, it was funny. I said, well, son, if it hadn't been funny, would you forgive me? He said, yeah. Heard doubt in that myself. But at any rate, what is my point? My point is that in the middle of doing a wonderful thing, these impulses came in that were not so wonderful. Anybody else live in that world? Right? That's the Christian life. That's it. For the rest of our existence, our sinful nature will fight with our new nature and produce a war. For the rest of our existence. 
we abide in Christ as this crazy way to fight the war. And when we look in the mirror, even though it's dark and even though it's hard to see, the more we look ultimately at our death or at his return, the glass will be clear and we will see him as he is. And as we have just sung, what a day that will be. Amen. So I'm going to end today, not with an invitation, but with a question to stick in your mind as you walk out these doors. If I truly believe that Jesus Christ is coming back, and I believe that he could do that at any moment, as I do. Is there anything in my lifestyle that if I knew by 6 p.m. tonight he would come back, that I would change? We'll battle. We've established that. But have some of you just thrown in the towel and you're living in full-on sin? If you're doing that, you certainly aren't abiding in Him. You're living as if He'll never come back. He'll never return. What in your lifestyle Now, if you knew Jesus Christ would return by 6 o'clock tonight, what would have to change? Definitely, if you say, Jerry, I've never trusted him as my Savior. I've never trusted him to rescue me from my sin to save me oh don't delay that he could come back say how do I do that admit your sinfulness believe Jesus died for you for your sin commit your life to him today by asking, seeking his forgiveness, turning from your sin, trusting him as your savior. If you need to talk about that, we've got plenty of staff here. We'd love to talk to you. Would you bow your heads? Jesus, now we see through a glass. Dimly, one day we'll see you face to face. I pray for anyone in this room who either does not know you as his or her Savior, that today he or she would say yes to you and receive your forgiveness of sins and watch as you begin to do a new work in his life or her life. I pray for those who do know you, whose lives are lived as if they do not think you're coming back today.
today, God, arrest their hearts. Convict them of sin. May there be tremendous change. Repentance. May they begin to practice righteousness, not sinfulness, in anticipation of your soon return. I pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.